Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The 27th chapter of Acts, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, it tells a long story. And it's the story of Paul on his way to Rome. The reason he's on the way to Rome is because Paul, in his ministry, had gone to Jerusalem, and there, in the temple area, some Jews who had it out for him. They were angry with him for what he was preaching and what he was teaching and doing. There, the Jews mobbed him and would have beat him to death, except he was rescued by the Roman guard. Now, they didn't understand the situation, So they took him to Caesarea. I'm just kind of cutting the story short. There's other details in there. And had him to stand before the governor of Caesarea, Felix. And now you understand the the power system that existed in that time and concerning the Jews. They were under Roman authority. Ultimately, Rome called the shots for them. However, it's interesting that the Roman government allowed the Jews their own little judicial system to a limited extent. So the Sanhedrin, the Jews, the priests, the king, remember King Herod, and in this story, King Agrippa, they were able to have their own little system to settle certain disputes within the house. Major things, of course, had to go to the Roman government. This one kind of fell in the middle. Paul is taken before Felix. He gives his testimony. And Felix doesn't know what to do with him. So Felix was a corrupt politician, which I repeat myself. And he would have gladly taken a bribe As a matter of fact, that's one reason why he left him in prison for two years, because he didn't uh, know what to do with Paul. He didn't quite understand the dynamics of everything and what they were arguing about and this this message of Jesus and why the Jews cared about it, and it it didn't make any sense to him. But the Bible says he, he wanted Paul to bribe him, and if he bribed him, he would have let him go. Paul wouldn't do it. Felix was relieved of his position. Festus was brought in and replaced him as the governor. And Felix could have released Paul at that time, but not wanting to incur the wrath of the Jews, he said, I'll just let Festus deal with it. So Festus inherited Paul in prison. And now the Jews expect Festus to do something about this. So Festus listens to him. Here's his testimony. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you realize that Paul backs up and gives his testimony before these powerful figures. And he talks about being on the road to Damascus and being uh, stricken with, blinded by a light and hearing the voice of Jesus. And uh, every time he has a chance to tell what this is all about, he starts with this testimony because it was a wonderful story and he wanted everybody to know the whole story. Arrested by Jesus there. And just one bit of, of good Bible uh, class information that you might get from this is every time Paul tell that, tells that story, one of the things that we tend to focus on is his conversion. But the conversion is not Paul's main point to the story. Paul's main point is his call. And you'll see that when he tells this story again to King Agrippa, just before he goes to Rome, and he says, uh, in summary, he says, and King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the call. That's what this is all about. In other words, when Paul is telling this, certainly the story of his conversion is a part of it, a significant part of it. 
But what Paul is saying, I have orders from God to do what I'm doing. I have been called to do this. I have authority to do this. He was declaring his call. Festus says to Paul, well now, would you rather go back to Jerusalem and be tried by the Jews? Or would you rather be tried by us? He said, I'll let, I'll let you go back. What would you? And Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, the, the most powerful man in the entire world. Why do you think Paul wanted to go before Caesar? Because he's got this great testimony. Because he has testified before governors, he's testified before the king, and he sees an opportunity to go before the most powerful man in the world and tell him the message of Jesus Christ. It wasn't because he thought he would get a fair trial. As a matter of fact, when he went to trial in Rome, he was beheaded. Now, how many of you would make that decision? Not sure that it would go in your favor in the courts. He chose to go to Caesar. And Festus, at that point, realizes the import of Paul making that decision. He says, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything else. He has appealed to Caesar. He must go to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. So Festus makes arrangements for Paul to go to Rome. And they get in the ship, and they start sailing up the Mediterranean, the north along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, stopping at little ports along the way, making their way, hugging the coastline until they come to the top and the land circles around and they head west, still hugging the coastline and going along until finally they come to a point where they have to let go of the land because it's a long stretch between Asia and getting over to Europe. So the, 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 the ship has to commit to open sea. They go to uh, Crete, which is an island, which is really their last safe stop before they hit the wide open seas. And the season is changing. Winter is setting in. This is a dangerous time of year. They come to Crete. They harbor there. They investigate. they, They consider the season, do we have enough time left to get from Crete and make that long journey over to Europe, Italy? Paul voted no. It wasn't because he didn't want to go see Caesar. It wasn't because he was hesitant as a prisoner on this ship to be taken to Rome. It's simply because wisdom Common sense told him, this is going to be a hard journey. I recommend we don't go. Paul was not a sailor. Do you think they listened to him? He's a landlubber. What do you know about sailing? So the owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, says stubbornly, we can make it. We're pressing ahead. So they left Crete. They headed for the open seas. And sure enough, just as Paul had spoken, They hit a storm, a winter storm, and it was a bad one. I start reading in the 27th chapter of Acts, the ninth verse. Much time had been lost. Sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement, which is referring to the change of the seasons after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Mem, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on. And how many of you know majority votes don't always make things right? hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. And when a gentle wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. 
the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. We passed to the lee of a small island called Cotta, and we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, and the men hoisted it aboard. And then they passed ropes under the ship to try and tie that ship and hold it together. You know you're in trouble when you're trying to tie the ship together with ropes to keep it from falling apart in this storm. So here they are trying to tie it and secure it. They were afraid that the ship was going to run aground in the sandbars of Sirtis. And they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship just be driven along. There was no use fighting it, just go with the storm. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. The storm continued raging, and we finally gave up all hope of being saved. The first point I want to make, as I just try and draw some spiritual parallels to this story, the writer of this story, Luke, writing this account, had no spiritual dimension that he intended from this other than just to record what happened. He was not trying to make spiritual applications. It's just a story. But what, like we like to do oftentimes, finding stories in the Bible, we can see spiritual applications. We love metaphor preaching. We love to think of living the Christian life as a race, as fighting a battle, as being in the war, as, as going to heaven, being on the old ship of Zion and sailing that journey. And we're just, we've got all these metaphors for what it means to serve the Lord. So we are inspired by this story to let the metaphors roll today. Here we are. The storms are coming. The storms of life. That's almost obvious in this story if we make a Christian application. Storms will come. Well, in this journey, I have one guarantee for you. You will at some point, at some time in your life, you will hit some turbulence along the way. And then the question is, what do you do? doesn't matter if the storms were created by the power of hell to derail you, or if they're just things that happen. And hell can't claim any credit for it, and you don't take any credit for it. It's just the difficulties of life. It doesn't matter if the storms are the result of your own poor choices, if they are self-inflicted. It doesn't matter if you're the unfortunate victim of somebody else's bad choices, like Paul was. He wasn't responsible for that storm. Somebody else made the choice to make that journey, to get on the boat and go. That wasn't Paul's fault. He was the innocent victim of somebody else's bad choice. You have found yourself in that position from time to time. It wasn't your fault. You didn't make the decision. Somebody else did it, but you're in trouble. Right along with those who made the choice. Doesn't matter. What does matter is hell seems to take quick advantage of storms to work on you. It's during the storms that the enemy works to try and get you to quit, to give up. As I read the last few words of that passage, we finally gave up and all hope of being saved was gone. That, if we make the spiritual application, is what opportunity hell is looking for. Find you in the storm and then just tell you it's over. You'll never come out of this. You're not going to survive. Just give up. Just quit. The second point is I want to encourage you as we develop this concept of the storm and the boat, stay in the boat. And let me read the next little passage of Scripture. On the 27th verse, it says, On the 14th night, two weeks of being in this storm, because it appears as soon as they set sail that the storm set in. So we're looking at a full two weeks. The sun didn't shine. The clouds, the storm, the ship tossed about. It seems as though it's going to fall apart. They have no control over it. 
They just let the storm toss it back and forth. They throw valuable things over to try and lighten the load. They don't know what to do. Fourteen nights driven across the sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They sounded with their technology and discovered that it was getting to be shallower waters, indicating they were getting closer to land, indicating that with this storm shaking and driving and pushing this ship back and forth, that if they got to where they began to hit the rocks, it was going to demolish the ship. And if it demolished the ship, they would not survive in this kind of a tumultuous storm. They took the soundings, found the water was 120 feet deep. They sounded again and found it 90 feet deep. And they began to fear being dashed against the rocks. So they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape, escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. The message there is we need everybody. First of all, quit panicking. Number two, we need everybody to stay on board and fight this. We can't afford for the people to get fragmented and a few of you decide to steal the lifeboat and go off somewhere safe and leave the rest of us to die. We need everybody. So Paul, who seems to be watching everything that's going on and I know is becoming an irritant to these people, this prisoner is calling the shots. Because... When you're full of the Spirit of God, it changes all the dynamics of the world. This prisoner is supposed to be locked away somewhere, not out there telling people what they should do and shouldn't do in the middle of this storm. Where's the captain? So here's Paul the prisoner, and he calls his intern. He says, those men, they're getting ready to steal your lifeboat and take off and tell them, if they leave, we're all doomed. They must stay on the boat. That, that's just rich with metaphorical application. So, the soldiers cut the ropes and let the lifeboat drift away. I am astonished by their decision. I have read this, and I ponder this, and I cannot help but ask myself the most obvious question. If you are on a large ship that is being broken and torn in the middle of a violent storm, what logic and sense does it make to get on a little tiny boat? That's not safe. That's stupid. Because in the middle of a storm, we have a tendency to make foolish decisions. Stay on the boat. First of all, commit yourself to the journey. Whenever the Spanish conquistador, Hernando Cortez led the expedition to help the Spanish colonize the Americas. Cortez and his men and all of his ships landed on the coast of Mexico and prepared at that point to conquer the Aztec Empire, hearing about the great riches that they would gain and the territory that they would annex if they could conquer these people. Some of the men of Cortez' army were reluctant to continue on their mission and they plotted to go back and steal one of the boats and return to their base camp in Cuba. Cortez learned of this plot of his men and ordered the ships to be destroyed. There's almost a folklore associated with that where the phrase, burn the ships, has come to be used. We don't know if he burned the ships or not. 
But he just ordered them destroyed, and he told his men, the only way we're going home is if we conquer these people and get their ships, because our ships are done. It's forward or nothing. There's no backing out. See, Paul was committed to this journey. There was no turning back. All the alternative plans had to be destroyed. No quitting, no deserting, straight ahead or nothing. It was do or it was die. That, my friend, is the commitment every one of you, man, woman, young man, young lady, that's the commitment God wants to hear you give to him that you're going to serve him and there's no turning back that you can say in your heart like that old song we used to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back. I admire those who have made that commitment. I admire those who have put the possibility of quitting, going back out of their mind. It's not a possibility. I admire those who have committed themselves and said, it's straight ahead. I don't care what storms I hit. I don't care what it costs me. I realize that all I can do is do everything in my power to make it to heaven. All I can do is do everything in my power to serve God, to be faithful to Him. Put the possibility of quitting out of your mind. When my wife and I got married, we decided early on we would never discuss divorce. It was not a possibility. It was not an option. Because had we not burned the boats... There would have been many times in our marriage, just like yours, where that would have been on the table and said, we have options. We can either work this out and change, or we can go our separate ways. And in the years that we've been married, had that been a possibility, that would have been on the table many times, I can promise you. But we burned the boat. It's not an option. So when you sit down and you talk about your marriage, what are the options? The options are we got to make this thing work. There's no place but ahead. There is no other option. We made a pact. We don't discuss that. Not going there. Not going to work. See, quitters are a dime a dozen. You cannot distinguish yourself from the crowd by being a quitter. You cannot distinguish yourself in God's kingdom by being a quitter. This world is full of people who started for Jesus but never finished for Jesus. This world is filled with people who have sat in the church and heard the gospel message and they decided no. I get kind of amused sometimes whenever we gather with other ministers and they want to talk about how big their church is and how much it's growing and how many decisions they have. Once in a while I have used this on them. I can say we, we probably had 300 decisions last year and they're in awe. I said most of them decided no. We get a whole lot more people deciding no than yes because they hear it and they're not interested. It's not my fault. You've got to make a decision. I'm going to live for Jesus and I'm going to follow through with this. People need to be committed to finishing the journey that they've started. Number two, don't panic. Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica, and they were having problems in the church with people panicking. Somebody had started the rumor that we are now in the end times, and the church just began to panic, wring their hands. What are we going to do? We're in the end times. And Paul wrote them a letter specifically addressing this heresy. He said, 
Be not soon shaken in your mind, nor yet be troubled by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Do not panic. It might look gloomy. You might be shaken. You might be troubled. You might be agitated. But the message that Paul has is just calm down. Keep your composure. Don't get rattled. Storms do come. Do not despair. There is no reason for a Christian to despair. Now, we're in a conflict. Because in this day and age we're living, we Christians, American Christians, 21st century Christians, are experiencing things we never thought we would experience in our lifetime. As a citizen, as a voter, as a concerned American, I am dismayed at the loss of the rights that we as Christians are losing. Because in a selfish manner, I want my children to grow up in a world that, had, uh, that was favorable towards Christianity. I went to school, and it, I saw the change. But up until the third grade, we prayed in class. Who wants to pray today? Everybody was a candidate to pray. We stood and said, pledge allegiance to the American flag. As a, as a citizen, and seeing these things stripped away, I'm deeply concerned. But on the other hand, as a Christian, the rights of a Christian in this world don't mean anything to me. As a Christian, I have no right to rights. As a Christian, I understand that that has no bearing whatsoever on the impact of the kingdom in this world. As a matter of fact, the church has flourished under persecution. It has not flourished in favorable conditions where the government was favorable to the church and they gave them consideration in their laws that they passed. That was not fertile ground for the church. When the church was born, it was born in persecution. It grew in persecution. The Bible says very plainly that what happened effectively is the enemy, Satan, smote the shepherd and the sheep scattered. And you can see the persecution that began to come into the Christian community in Jerusalem that drove Philip up to Samaria. It was persecution that forced him out of the nest where great revival broke out. Persecution for the first hundred years, first two hundred years, three hundred years. And getting into the fourth century. Finally, the Roman government begins to become... Sympathetic to Christianity. Constantine lifted the oppression of the Christians and the persecution of the Christians. And shortly after that, Rome adopted Christianity as its official religion. Now you think the church has really hit pay dirt, don't you? They have suffered the persecution. They've fought the battle. They have now won the Roman Empire. And everything's going to be well. And from the moment that Rome adopted Christianity as its major religion, the church began to go into uh, decline. It became stalemated. It just grew weaker and weaker and became more institutionalized until finally, over the next several hundred years of no virtual persecution, it entered what was called the Dark Ages. It took a while to get there. It took a while for the church to become apostate. But entering into the Dark Ages, no persecution to keep the church on its toes, to keep the church desperate for God. It's always been persecution that has fueled the church. So that's why I say I'm conflicted. As a citizen, I feel like this. But as a Christian, I said, I don't care. 
You can do whatever you want to about your rights. You can make it illegal for me to be a Christian. You can make it illegal for us together. Just bring it on because I know that there is no power on the face of the earth that can stop the church because the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We do our best work when we're oppressed, when we're persecuted. Don't panic. In 1929... It was an era when World War I had ended years before. And bouncing out of that ugly war, we entered into that decade called the Roaring Twenties, which depicted a time of great prosperity. The stock market had experienced ten consecutive unbroken years of phenomenal growth. And then... Somebody declared that this was on a permanent plateau. Permanent prosperity for America. And the markets began to bobble. Major bankers reached into their pockets and pumped money into the stock market to stabilize it. And it rebounded a little bit. But the crash, the weight was too heavy. It was heavier than being supported by a few wealthy bankers. And it could not sustain itself. And in the fall of 1929, it began to experience these little, these little quakes. And things were beginning to happen that there was uncertainty. And in September, the market took a, a terrible hit. And they saw it slowly start to rebound. They thought, this, maybe it's just a hiccup. Maybe we're over it. Until it came to what two days called Black Monday and Black Tuesday, October 28th and 29th, 1929, where the market dropped, and the next day, the bottom fell out. People scrambled to sell their stocks. They could not sell them at any price. They would take a penny on their stock if they could get it. Nobody wanted it. And panic set in. You've heard the people talk about people jumping out of windows. We don't know that there were a lot of people that jumped out of windows, but we do know there was a lot of panic that set in. The vice president of the Earl Radio Corporation jumped to his death from a window of a Manhattan hotel. His suicide note read, we're broke. Last April, I was worth $100,000, and today I owe $24,000. Winston Churchill was visiting New York after the day after Black Tuesday. And by the noise of the crowd outside of the Savoy Plaza Hotel, he noticed under my very window a gentleman had cast himself down 15 stories and dashed to pieces, causing a wild commotion in the rival of the fire brigade. The wife of a Long Island broker shot herself in the heart. A utility executive in Rochester, New York, shut himself in the bathroom and opened the gas valve and asphyxiated himself. A St. Louis broker swallowed poison. A Philadelphia financier shot himself. While in the athletic club, a divorcee in Allentown, Pennsylvania, closed the doors and the windows of her home and turned on a gas oven. And in Milwaukee, one gentleman who took his own life left a note that read, My body should go to science, my soul to Andrew W. Mellon, and my sympathy should go to my creditors. And when panic and discouragement and despair began to set in, people began to want to get off the boat. And these sailors that were in this boat tossed about like a mere rag doll in that stormy sea. The solution to their problem is let's just get off the boat. They can't stand the storm that's going on. Now I want you to think about the big picture because the reason when I started this sermon and I went clear back to Paul and his trial before Felix and his trial before Festus and his testimony before Agrippa and his appealing to Caesar, I want you to understand the big picture. The big picture is when you're in the middle of a storm, if you can't see the big picture, all you can see is I'm hurting and I want out. But Paul saw the big picture. This was not just about a storm on a sea in a boat. This was about I've got a mission for God. I've got a plan I'm fulfilling. I am serving Him. I'm headed to see Caesar. And there's something bigger to this than just a stupid storm. We lose the big picture when we get in the midst of all these difficulties. We can't see the big picture. We can't stay on course. We can't see the big picture. 
we lose our willingness to commit ourselves to this journey. If we can see the big picture, you won't even think about jumping off the boat because it's bigger than going through a storm. When you realize there's a race to be run, there's a victory to be won, there is work to be done, all the raging storms of hell don't need to abort your omission. It just strengthens your resolve. Get the big picture. The big picture is that storms most often are deterrents from hell to get you to quit. Why would you surrender to that? Why would anybody surrender? The big picture is that storms are spiritual battles. Why would you surrender to a spiritual battle? Stay on the boat. My final point is I'm going to apply what the boat is. Stay on the boat of your Christian journey. It's heartbreaking to see people once a part of the family of God who have strayed. I hear all kinds of excuses. In all of my years of ministry, I've never heard one legitimate excuse for anybody walking away from God. But sadly, apostasy is one of the prominent features of the end times. What's going to happen in the end times? People are going to fall away. You know, the word apostasy in the New Testament is only used twice. I'm not talking about the English word because as you get different translations, they may use it, but I'm talking about the Greek word for apostasy. It's only used twice. But the concept of apostasy is mentioned many times in the New Testament, and most of the time when it's mentioned, it it comes under the phrase of a falling away, which is a different Greek word, but the concept is the same, a falling away. Jesus spoke at length about people who would fall away. And there are three major causes. These are not the only causes, but the three big causes of people falling away, jumping ship, getting off the boat when the storms come, is the storm of temptation, the storm of deception, and the storm of persecution. Now, there's other causes as well. Fear, discouragement, disillusionment, panic, anger. There's a lot of reasons why people quit. Some of them fall under those three. Some of them are just distinct but less prominent. But the big three are clearly at work today in these end times. Temptations have gone high tech. Just like everything else, it's become easier and more convenient to steal and to lie and to lust than ever before in the history of man. Persecution as well is coming. And it's coming against a fat and flabby American church in unprecedented measures. Persecution never did serve to wipe out the church. It's only separated the chaff from the wheat the goats from the sheep. It lets us know who is sincere and who is not. There will be people who are not prepared to suffer for their faith, and they will jump off the boat. And deception is quite obviously at work, which leads me to a next point. Stay on the boat of godly biblical truth. Another prominent feature of end-time Uh, of the end times, is heresy. Paul wrote these words to Timothy in his first letter. He said, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and will follow, listen to this, would you? Deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That, my friend, reads like modern-day headlines. Written 2,000 years ago. And Paul said... In the last days, people will depart from the faith. They will follow things taught by deceiving spirits, doctrines of devils, and that is exactly what is happening today. Disregarding the truth, the validity of the Bible, writing their own Bible, making up their own truth. It's the doctrine of demons. It's a spirit of deception. Heresy is contradictory to maintaining your faith. You cannot dabble in heresy and maintain your faith. They are are tied together, tethered together, inseparable. 
The seductive notion today is the Bible can be rewritten and you can still maintain your faith under this new revelation. Entire churches have been established to accommodate those who have adopted heretical views of Scripture. But I'm telling you, stay in the boat of biblical truth. Don't let the storms that are coming against truth dissuade you. Don't listen to the nonsense that this world is trying to tell you and the junk they are trying to cram down your throat and into your ears and into your brain. Go to God's Word and find the truth. It's unchanging. It's not the Bible that needs to change to accommodate culture. It's culture that has always needed to change to come in alignment with the Bible. Number three, stay in the boat of local fellowship. And I end this sermon on a personal note. One young man put it this way. He said, the bus pulls up and some get on and some get off. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's just the way it is. The revolving door on the church. Some come, some go. Most people, when they go, quietly slip out the back door never to be seen again. A few in my ministry, very few, come in and have a talk with me about their plans to leave and their reasons for leaving. Occasionally, but rarely, somebody gives me a legitimate reason for leaving the church. Something might be that somebody says, I've got a, uh, I've got a, a, a child that is very connected at this other church. And they're doing well, and we want to enforce them. You know, as a pastor, I I understand that. I pray with them. I bless them. I I wish it were not the case, but I can't change that. But rarely have I ever heard legitimate reasons. But people are basically unaware that there are a few stock explanations that hell has published that have been used a thousand times before you ever walked into my office, and you're just recycling. Here's one of those, if you've got a moment to be lightly humored. They sit there and they say, we feel God is calling us to another church. Now, if I had a nickel, everybody wants to hide behind God told them to do something because they're not brave enough to stand up and say, we have made a decision, it's always God's fault. And, you know, if I believe that, I'd be bitter at God for telling all these people not to attend my church. The first thing you can almost 100% guarantee is God didn't tell them any such thing. God's leading me to another. You wouldn't know God leading you if he put a ring in your nose and pulled you. Here's another one. We're just not getting fed here. I have had people in the same church, the same church, that one says, I'm just not getting fed here, and the other one said, I've never fed so much in all of my life. Two people in the same place. All I can conclude is one doesn't have a fork. Here's another one. And this one I love. They schmooze me. Really, it has nothing to do with you, Pastor. We love your preaching. We love this church, but we're leaving. And it usually says, because we just don't care for fill in the blank. Use your own. It doesn't make any difference. We don't like the the songs. We don't like the carpet. We don't like the lighting. We we love you. I've heard these so many times, and there's more, and I'm not going to spend any more time on these. They're thin cover-ups for other issues. There's always other issues. There's no use debating the point. They made up their minds before they ever came in. They're just looking for a smooth exit. But there's one that just puzzles me. This one, this one I don't get. Had a lady come into my office and she said, Pastor, I'm leaving the church. This has been since I've been here. I said, why? She says, because everybody else is leaving. Can, Can you even get your brain around that? No reason a follower. And if, if you're not committed, if you're a follower, that can happen to you too. You see everybody taking a path and you jump in line. I don't know where we're going, but I want to be with them. Don't know of any problems. You're happy here. You like the church, but it just seems like I ought to follow the people that are walking out. 
Maybe they know something I don't. And Jesus had this huge following. They were attracted to him. It was thrilling to follow this evangelist and see the miracles. And hear him teach and the words just flow so eloquently. Oh, they loved being around him. And then he decided to preach this sermon on the manna from heaven. And the farther he got into it, the weirder it got. And he talked about God giving the Israelites manna in the wilderness. And then he said, I'm the manna from heaven. They didn't know what to make of that. What do you mean you're the manna from heaven? And they said, you've got to eat my body to love God. And they go, whoa. Oh, he said, yeah, wash it down with my blood. Eat my body, drink my blood. And people looked at each other and said, this guy's nuts. What are we following him for? The Bible says many walked away from him, went away and walked no more with him. And it it cleaned out the church. (laughs) All I got to do is preach a hard sermon. You can clean it out. And Jesus turned around and he looked at Peter And the unspoken communication was this. Peter, there they are. You can catch them. Hurry up. If you want to go, you want to go, go. And Peter stood there, and it didn't take him a split second to figure out a bunch of fools were walking away. And he spoke to Jesus, and he said, where would I go? Where's there to go? What would I do? I've already determined in my life, you have the words of eternal life. They're walking away from eternal life. Where would I go? It's so easy to walk away. It's so easy to follow the crowd, but it takes somebody possessed of the spirit of Peter to stand there and say, there is no other choice in this world. I've decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. When Jesus performed miracles, crowds flocked to him. When he taught the hard truth, they deserted him. This temporary fling with Christ was finally over. The romantic notions of traveling with us itinerant evangelists, basking the miraculous manifestations of God's power and glory were shattered by the reality that it's going to cost you something to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's going to be storms. There's going to be difficulties you're going to have to deal with. You're going to struggle with things you don't understand. But are you committed to Christ? And this dynamic lives on today in the church. It seems people keep looking for some church somewhere where they don't have any struggles. They don't have any obstacles to overcome. Everything is to their liking. They want the glory to fall in every service, and the glory is not going to fall in every service. They want to be lifted into the third heaven every Sunday. They won't be lifted. You might even get to the first heaven some Sundays. And when a storm comes, the first thing they do is start lowering the lifeboats. We're getting out of here. We don't like the conflict. I've talked with many people who have gone through a storm in their church. I talked with a young man the other day going through a tremendous storm in his church. I said, hang in there. Hang in there. What good are you going to do running from that? Hang in there and be one of the ones that are part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Has it ever occurred to anybody here that Satan has figured out that whatever offends people and causes them to quit, that he'll use that? Have you ever gotten that? If you are easily offended, he's got a tool. He has a weapon. I've met some outstanding saints in my life who were unmoved by any storms. They were not scared. The skittish group of people that feared the storm and started making an exit plan, they were people who shared the spirit of Peter and just said, Lord, I don't have any place to go. You have the words of eternal life. Now I'm talking about stay in the fellowship. Stay in the fellowship. Stay in the lifeboat. Unless there's gross immorality, stay in the fellowship. Unless there's the word, the truth is not being preached, stay in the boat. Don't let a few storms intimidate you. Stay in the boat. We need everyone. When a pastor of our church in California 
We went through the worst storm in ministry my wife and I have ever been through. We pray daily. We never go through another one like that again. I pray the hardest one we got out of the way. Because if there's a harder one coming, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to know. Lord, just sneak up behind me. Hit me with an iron skillet. I just, I don't want to know. It was devastating what we went through. Few people are aware of some of the struggles we've had here. This has been a cakewalk. I don't want you to be under any false impression. This has been a cakewalk. This has been a vacation compared to what we went through. And just to kind of clarify a few things, the former pastor had had multiple affairs with women in the church, and it was sick and sordid. And some people refused to believe it, and they stood staunchly beside him. I had to come in and start cleaning up that rat's nest mess. And the people began to despise me for putting a standard down and taking a stand. I said, no more of this. We're not going to do this anymore. They began to hate me. I got death threats. I got hate mail. People dropped mail through my mail slot in my office before I could run out and find out who it was. They's gone. One letter said, I hope you burn in hell, Pastor. I'm surprised they still call me Pastor. Nothing personal, Pastor. We love you. We just hope you burn in hell. And our church dwindled as we fought this battle. Little tiny community church. Little tiny community. Mountain community church. 3,000 people in the community. We dwindled from 150 people, 125, 175, 50. Pretty soon you got 50 people, 40, 50 people sitting in the congregation. And I had this one little lady that just, when I, was, when I came to the church, they warned me. Now, you watch out for her. She is one of those name it and claim it people. She'll drive you nuts. And she was, and she did. And I want to tell you, I loved her to pieces. I know she was into all this name and claim. She, she did some of the silliest stuff. She came up to me one time, and I digress here, and I apologize for digressing. But I, I haven't preached for two weeks, and I just got a lot in me. She said, Pastor, she said, I had arthritis in my wrist, and I rebuked it, and it jumped to my elbow. I said, oh, Jewel, you got that old leaping arthritis. I said, I don't <laughs> Oh, she was a case, but I loved her. You know why? Because Jewel got up at 4 in the morning. And put on her tennis shoes, her sneakers. Watch out for holy women, spirit-filled women in sneakers. They're dangerous. And she hit the streets of Bernie, and she started walking around the neighborhood. And she walked, I don't know, for an hour, two hours. She walked, and she prayed. And she walked around that town, and she prayed. And I, I don't care what else she all that, that that flaky stuff she was into was this woman knew prayer. And when I needed prayer, I called up. Who do you think I called up? I called up Jewel. And I didn't care about all that leaping arthritis and everything else. I said, Jewel, pray for me. And she walked up to me on one Sunday when I was particularly discouraged. And she got in my face and she said, Pastor, we would rather have 50 happy people here as to have that mess we had before. Keep preaching the word. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Don't jump the ship. Don't give up. Don't quit. Stay in the boat. Stay in the boat. We need everyone. Don't let a few storms derail you. Commit yourself. Stay in the boat. Worship team, would you come?